One Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. And for more information, please visit us on the web at onechurch.net. Good thing. How's everybody doing today? Everybody doing good? Everybody feeling good? You're, you're looking good this morning. And uh, who's had a good week? Good week? Who's gone to the beach this week? Some are only our Norwegian friends. <laughs> it was a beautiful, beautiful week, and uh, we had a great time on our men's retreat. Uh, all, the, all the men uh, make a hoorah or something, some manly noise. Uh, we had an awesome, awesome, awesome time, but it's so good to be uh, together. And uh, summer is upon us. I don't know if you've noticed uh, this morning. Did anybody feel that humidity outside this morning? Some of you felt that this morning. Who, whose uh, hair is struggling this morning? I hear you. I hear you, Deanna. The struggle is real. Um, well, it is. Uh, summer will be upon us. We've got some great things coming up. I'll just mention quickly. Uh, on June 5th, we are having uh, our first of three uh, of what we're calling power prayer rallies. And uh, who, how many of you like to pray? Some of you are like, oh, I know I should like to pray. I don't know if I like to pray. Well, that, uh, this is the prayer meeting for those of you who don't like prayer meetings, okay? Uh, we are calling it our Power Prayer Rally, and here's what it's going to be. It's kind of like uh, a hit uh, prayer meeting. Who knows a hit workout? High interval, high intensity interval training, right? So this is a hip prayer meeting, okay? Uh, how many of you know there's nothing worse than a sleepy prayer meeting? Have you ever been to a prayer meeting and you feel like, I need to be revived after the prayer meeting? I, I got to tell you, in my mind, there's nothing worse than a sleepy prayer meeting. Now, there are times, the Bible says, pray with all kinds of prayer and supplication. So there are times that we, we should pray quietly and just spending time with the Lord. I spent some time uh, the beginning of this week, the first time I've ever done it, going away just by myself with the Lord for three days to just quiet and spending time with the Lord. It's important for us to do that. Uh, but there's also times that we need to lift up our voices. And uh, we're going to see in the book of Joshua, not today, but in, in a couple of weeks, that uh, Joshua lifted up their voice and uh, as they entered into Jericho. And uh, how many of you, let me just say this, and, and we can be real honest here. How many of you are not super comfortable praying out loud? Actually, that's a bad question, because if you're not comfortable praying out loud, you're the same people that are not comfortable raising your hand. I'm sorry. My apologies. Raise your hand in your heart if you are a person that does not feel comfortable. I have to tell you, I, I have been that before. I mean, I have felt that. I have been that. Um, and I, uh, I remember one time in a prayer meeting, just sitting on the, on the, the wall of the prayer meeting and thinking, uh, I'm counting down until this is over. And I remember somebody coming up beside me and, and putting their arm around me and just kind of pulling me out of my comfort zone and uh, brought me into a place where I have learned to pray. And I think prayer is uh, the most important thing that we can learn, how to pray. And so uh, even if you're a person that doesn't pray, we want to encourage you, come out to this prayer meeting. Here's the good thing about it. It's going to be like 20 minutes long, okay? So I know some of you that are prayer warriors, you want to linger, you're wanting it to be an all-night prayer meeting, you're welcome to stay all night. Uh, it's going to be in the back parking lot and uh, of our future building, so you'll have some reasons to pray once the sun goes down. But uh, 
we're going to stay there for a short period of time. So that's coming up uh, on June 5th at 6 o'clock, Power Prayer Rally. It's going to be a great time. And then the following Sunday on June 12th, uh, we are going to have all of our house churches, which, by the way, how many of you are grateful for our incredible house church leaders? If you're a house church leader, would you just stand up to your feet just so everybody can, can recognize? Can we give these incredible people a round of applause? They, they are the heroes, the heroes uh, of our church. And uh, if you are not yet in a house church, we want to encourage you, prioritize that. Join in a house church. If you're missing out on house church, you're missing out on church. And so I want to encourage you to be a part of a house church. But we're going to be gathering all of our house churches on June 12th, uh, for a Lee Road Community Cleanup Day. I went a couple of weeks ago to a uh, Lee Road Safe Neighborhood Association meeting. And, um, you know, as we get out on Lee Road, we don't want to just get there on Sundays and have a nice little uh, kumbaya club. We want to make an impact in our community. Amen? And uh, so we, even as we're preparing to move out there, we're beginning to engage the community. And so uh, I went a couple of weeks ago to the Lee Road Safe Neighborhood Association meeting, and uh, they, they were asking uh, for volunteers to do trash cleanup, and, and the enthusiasm was about the same as the, the prayer meeting a moment ago. And, uh, but I said, we will, one church will. We'll go clean up trash, and so we're going to be going out. How many of you think that's a good thing? Yes, it's a good thing. We need to pray and pick up trash, okay? And so we're going to do that. We're going to go out on uh, Sunday, June 12th, 10 a.m., and uh, we're going to pick up trash for the glory of God, okay? And so just so you know, uh, we'll have a variety of, of uh, opportunities for you to pick up trash. So there, we're, we'll make sure that there's a place, if you have your kids with you, that is like uh, easy trash, okay? And then some of you, you're the Navy SEALs of trash cleanup. We'll have a, an opportunity for you as well, okay? Okay, awesome. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, would you grab it with me and turn to the book of Joshua? Joshua chapter 5. Anders, would you mind bringing me my water bottle? I forgot to bring that up. Thank you, Chad. There's a whole group of us, I've found out, there's a whole group of us turning 40 this year. So 82 was a good, was a good year. Let me take a sip of my water. All right, 82. Um... Joshua chapter 5, and uh, we have been in this series that we're calling um, Possessing the Land. And if you're just new with us, maybe popping in for the first time today, uh, we are talking about uh, moving into the destiny of God. I, I don't know about you, but I, I want everything that God has for me. I, I want everything that God has for me. And, you know, there's many people that live their lives saved uh, they, they know they're saved from the past, but they don't know what they're saved to. You ever met somebody like that? They're saved. They love the Lord, but they talk about the good old days. You remember, you ever talk to somebody like that? Man, we used to have so much fun. Yeah, we had the best of times. Man, Friday night, it was a great time, and then I got saved. Sounds like getting saved is a condition you don't want to catch. You know what I'm saying? Good God. You got saved. I don't want that. The problem is they've, they've gotten saved from the past, but they don't know what they're saved for. And, and that is uh, a misconception. That's a minimization, if that's a word, uh, a minimizing of our salvation. 
You see, when God saves you, he doesn't just save you from your old life. He also saves you for a new life. He saves you for a purpose. The Bible says this, that we're saved for good works, which were prepared in advance that we should walk in them. In other words, God's, God didn't just save you so that you can make it to heaven after you die. Now, that's good news. If you were on your deathbed today, I would tell you that you have the, the wonderful hope, the blessed hope, that when this life ends, the best is yet to come. But you're not on your deathbed this morning. Let me just check. Everybody, check your, check your pulse. You're alive. That means God has a purpose for you. God has a destiny for your life. And, and here we find in the book of Joshua the picture of a group of people that have been delivered out of bondage. They've been delivered out of slavery. But, but many people uh, have just, they spent a generation just parking in the wilderness. And, and now in the book of Joshua, God is beginning to take them in to everything that he has for them. And I just have to tell you today, since Chad already said it, my 40th birthday coming up this week, I just have to tell you today, I'm stepping in. Amen. Well, let's all go in. Whether you're 40 or 80 or wherever you're at, 14, let's all move into what God has for us. Amen? Right. I, I, I've said this before. Coming out of COVID, there's a lot of people talking about, let's get back. I'm going, no, I don't want to go back. Let's go forward. Right. Let's go forward into what God has for us. Us, what God has ahead of us is way better than what's behind us. There's a, there's a future, there's a destiny, there's a hope, there's a calling, there's a mission ahead of us. And so we're not going to live our spiritual lives looking in the rearview mirror. We're going to move into everything that God has for us. And so today I want to speak out of Joshua chapter 5. And um, Joshua chapter 5, I want to read verses 1. Uh, down to verse 7 this morning, and it says this, So it was, when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted, and there was no spirit left in them. In other words, it took their breath away. They heard what God was doing, and they were breathless. There was no spirit or breath left in them because of the children of Israel. And at that time, listen to this, God said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. Let's keep moving. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt were males. All the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who had come out of Egypt had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which he had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not 
yet been circumcised on the way. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on circumcision, but today you will. All the men just kind of squirm in their seats a little bit. I want to speak to you today about marking the next generation. Marking the next generation. I have a lot of jokes, uh, circumcision jokes. I'll save them. If, you'd like to, if, you would, if you would like them, they are funny, I promise you. Uh, and my wife's not in the room, but my mom is, so I can't say them. But if you'd like to hear them, come see me after service. Here we find Israel has come uh, across the Jordan. They, they have, for the first time, entered into the place that God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years earlier, generations earlier. They've heard about it. They've longed for it. It's been prophesied, destined of, of what God had for them. 400 years in slavery and brought out of bondage and now 40 years walking in the wilderness. And here, as I spoke a couple of weeks ago about moving in the miraculous, God moved miraculously and Israel for the first time, children of Israel stepped over and put their feet on the promised land. Now, I don't know about you, but if that was me, I would say party time. It's time to celebrate. We have made it to the promised land. Who likes a good party? Yeah. I'd be like, come on, let's, let's party. we got to stop here and celebrate. But that's not what God says. God says it's not time to celebrate. It's time to circumcise. Now, let me tell you, if you ever get invited to a circumcision party, decline. Okay? Do not go. I'm keeping these jokes in my head right now. But that is not what they or we would have wanted to do. We would have wanted to celebrate. But God said, I want you to get the flint knives. We're going to have some ministry time at the end of the service today. And Nate's brought some knives. <laughs> After the men's retreat, we're feeling very masculine. <laughs> no, we're going to have ministry time, but not that kind of knife. But God says, I want you to circumcise the next generation. And he tells us why. Because there had been a whole generation that were brought out of bondage. They had walked in the wilderness for 40 years. They saw manna come from heaven. They saw water come from a rock. They saw miracles, deliverance through the Red Sea. God had worked miraculously and Moses had led them. They, they had seen the miracles, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, but they had never gotten the mark. They had never been marked. You see, Moses led them, and he was super successful by all of the metrics that we would measure success by. I mean, he was a, a, an incredible, we could say, an executive leader, delegating authority and, and leading a you know, million people through the wilderness. He was incredibly successful as a leader, but he failed as a father. In fact, the Bible actually says that specifically Moses neglected to circumcise his kids. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you may be wondering, what's all this circumcision about? I thought that was like a medical thing. No, it's actually first a spiritual thing. 
And if you remember the story of Abraham, the the father of our faith, God spoke to him and said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to increase you. I'm going to multiply you through the nations or through you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Bible said that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. It was by faith that Abraham received the promise of God, received the blessing of God. And that's a picture of our salvation, that that through faith in Jesus, we receive the blessing of God into our lives. We've been brought out of bondage, but we've been brought into blessing. And God said, I'm going to bless you. And, And your children after you will be blessed. And through you, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And ultimately, it's through Jesus that that is fulfilled. But then he said this, Abraham, I want you to mark yourself. I want you to circumcise yourself. Now, I've thought about that. How would that be for the first time? The first guy in that line? I don't know about you. That's not a line I would want to be in the first line of. If you ever see circumcision on Groupon, avoid it. Okay? You don't want the new guy. I'm sorry. The jokes are coming out. I'm trying to hold them back. But now, so it was, the, it was the sign of the covenant. Circumcision was the, was the mark that marked them. Here's what I, I want you to see. It wasn't the substance. The substance was faith. Abraham had faith. He believed God that what God said to him would be fulfilled. It was, it was the substance was his faith, but the sign, circumcision was the sign. It, it was a constant reminder that what God had promised To him, he believed enough to obey. And the truth is that for every single one of us, if our faith does not produce obedience, we have to ask the question, is it really faith? Is it really faith? If I I say I believe it, and I may even affirm a theological statement, but what I truly believe is not what I say I believe or what I even believe that I believe. What I actually believe is what I live as though it is true. And he believed God, therefore he obeyed God and and was marked. And and God wanted this people, this group of people through whom he would change the world. He wanted them to bear this mark. But here we see for 40 years, they've come through the wilderness and a generation has never been marked. And and I believe for us, that is a a picture and a, a warning for all of us that God's purpose and God's promise for our lives, it's not just uh, about us moving into the promised land. It's not just about what we possess. I was preaching here one time when we first started our evening services, and I, I was preaching on Lazarus. I said, Lazarus, come forth. And there was a bolt, a bolt of thunder outside at the very moment, and people started listening at that point. What God wants for us, the fullness of our faith, is not just about us possessing something. It's about us passing something on to the next generation. You see, if we, if we have faith to possess and faith to believe and, and, and uh, take hold of what God has for us, but we never pass it to the next generation, we have failed. We have failed. And I want to say this as a church, that as we are preparing to move into the future that God has for us, that it's not just about us. It's not just about me getting a blessing and you getting a blessing and us. 
you know, being grateful for the goodness of God in our lives, it's not just about what we possess, it's about what we pass to the next generation. You see, God is always a generational God. Everything that God does, He does in generations. Why? Because God is a generator. He, he is the generator. He is the, the one that gives life to everything. And so when God comes into your life, it's a Genesis moment. Who knows what I'm talking about? Who's had a Genesis moment? You used to be this, and, and you've had a Genesis new beginning, and now you're that. And, and, and now you live differently and you talk differently. But God's not just a generator and he doesn't bring just a Genesis moment, but he also uh, works in generations. In other words, when God saves you, he's not just saving you. You contain within you the potential to impact generations to come. Now, you may not believe me, but let me just give you some illustrations from nature. How many of you know when God makes a, a, an acorn, he's not just making an oak tree? To steal my dad's illustration, he's not just making an oak tree, he's making a whole forest. How many of you know when God makes a dog, he's not just making a dog, he's making a litter of puppies? Or, or kittens if it's a cat. When God makes a Christian, he doesn't just make a Christian. You contain within you the seed to transform generations to come. You see, when God saves a Christian, he doesn't just make a Christian. There's actually, and I'm going to be bold to say this, you contain within you, I would say, even the seeds for a whole Jesus reproducing movement. When God saves you, he may be saving your whole neighborhood. He may be saving your workplace. He may be saving your children and your children's children. And should the Lord tarry children's children, children's children. Because God is a generational God. He always moves in generations. And so here Israel is coming in and they're taking the blessing. But God is saying, I want you to make sure that you are passing the mark to the next generation. And I believe what God wants us to be is a people that don't just live for our blessing. Don't just live for the, the goodness of God in our lives, but we want to pass it on. Uh, to, yes, to our natural children. I'm looking out there today and I see all of the children that God has given us. What a wonderful blessing. But for those of us that are maybe even out of the season of having natural children, or maybe we don't have natural children of our own, God wants all of us to be reproducing. God wants all of us to be passing the mark to other people. He wants us to mark the next generation. And my prayer is this, that we would be the kind of people that, that again, if the Lord would tarry 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now, there would be people that would look back and say, you know the, what, there was a little community in, in Orlando, Florida, that allowed themselves to be marked by God. And they didn't just live for their own benefit, their own blessing. They caught a hold of the bigness of God's purpose. And now my life is marked because of them. I believe God's calling us to be a people that mark the next generation. That mark spiritual sons and daughters. If we've been serving God for any period of time, we ought to have spiritual sons and daughters. I don't know if you realize this, but God said, go make disciples. He didn't say that to pastors. He didn't say that to a few, you know, people that have a degree. He said it to everyone. We're called to mark the next generation. We're called to mark sons and daughters. 
And so I want to give you a few aspects, a few characteristics of faith that marks the next generation. Not just faith that possesses the destiny and the promised land, but faith that is passed to the next generation. The first thing I want you to see about generational faith is, number one, generational faith is hidden faith. Now, you may hear that and say, what? Hidden? I don't think we're not supposed to let our light be hidden. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm saying is that it first needs to be in a hidden place. I don't know if you recognize this, but circumcision is not evident to everyone. It is, it's in the hidden place. It's in, it's, it's covered, it's in secret. And what God is saying is that the primary place of your faith, the transformation first begins in the hidden place. The secret place. If we want to be people that mark the next generation, it's not just about a better performance in public. It's about faith in private. I, I don't know if you would agree with me on this, but I would say that the church over the last 40 years has probably done a better job than ever in terms of the public presentation. Anybody like me growing up in church, and no offense to my mom and dad, but maybe you grew up in a church that it wasn't a cool church? You know, it wasn't a cool church. You thought, you know, God was there. And if somebody came, they, they may meet God. Uh, but if you don't love Jesus, it's not the cool place to be. And uh, that's, that was the reality. But over time, people started going, you know what? We've got to get a little, little more relevant. We've got to get a little more cool. We've got to get a little more hip, better in our presentation. Let me say there's nothing wrong with that. But I believe the pendulum has swung too far. And here's what can happen, that there can be a, a public display, but a private deficit. And, and the, the world will not be impacted by how well we display our faith publicly if there is a hidden deficit. If there is no reality in the hidden place. And the Bible says this, that ultimately the spiritual life and even the mark in the new covenant is not, a, not an external mark, but it's our hearts have been circumcised. Our hearts have been cut. We, we have a, a new heart on the inside. And out of that heart begins to flow a new life. And so if we want faith that marks the next generation, it's not about a better presentation. It's about a, a better reality on the inside. I remember hearing a story one time of a, a very public scandal and, and failure and I, of, a, of a Christian leader. And I remember saying to my dad, Dad, how does that happen? I mean, whoever goes into serving God and preaching the gospel and, and, and doing this and says, you know what I think I'm going to do? I'm just going to have something secret behind the scenes and I'm just going to destroy my life. I'm going to destroy my reputation. I'm going to destroy my ministry. And I remember what my dad said. It, it stuck with me. He said, son, it wasn't his life that was destroyed. It was the facade that he built that was destroyed. And here's what he said. If you want to avoid ever having a public failure, make sure the distance between the public display and the private devotion is not a far gap. That doesn't mean that we share everything with everybody, but that means that what we are sharing should be the reality coming out of the hidden place of our hearts. The Bible says this, 1 Peter says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Rather, let it be in the hidden person of the heart, an internal reality, an internal beauty. 
Samuel says this in the Old Testament, the man looks on the outward appearance, the, the outward display. But what does God look at? God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. If we want a faith that marks the next generation, it's not about a, a better presentation. It's about a better reality. The reality of the presence of God living within us. Now, I think that it could be that even over these last couple of years, part of what God is doing is cutting off the public display. Not that there's not a public display of our, uh, of our faith. I, I believe there should be. But we can develop a public dependency and a private deficiency. And God cuts it off. God, God cuts off the, the, the public dependence so that we would learn to have that hidden faith, that secret faith, that faith that, that doesn't just look good when the, the worship team hits the right chord progression. I love that. That's great. Didn't the worship team do awesome this morning? As always. Wonderful, wonderful. But if you can't worship when there is no worship team, you're not a worshiper. You're a worship team dependent. Okay? And I love, I love worship teams. I love great music. I love all of that. But I think God wants worshipers in our hearts. And so we've been tested. We've been, even in, in the uh, presentation of worship, we've allowed it intentionally to be scaled down so that our hearts could lean into a greater reality. So number one, if we want to mark the next generation, if we want faith that will mark the next generation, we need hidden faith. We need hidden faith in the hidden parts of our heart. The second thing I want you to see is not only do we need hidden faith, but we also need sacrificial faith. Sacrificial faith. It, it, th this mark was not a comfortable experience. This mark was a sacrifice. It, it was painful. Again, I'm tr I'll try not to give a, too much of a description about it. I do have some illustrations. Let's throw those. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It was sacrificial. And, and I know, you know, Again, we don't talk about this publicly, but it's in the Bible, and it's in the book of Joshua, and I tried to skip over it, but it's there, okay? And, and it's, it's a reality of what God has called us to do. It's a picture of our faith, and it doesn't feel good. Circumcision doesn't feel good. Can I get a good amen? Come on. Amen. <laughs> Look at what it says here. Again, uh, forgive me if this is your first time. Come next Sunday. Uh, this is, we, I've never preached on this before. But look at what it says. He, it says, circumcise the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. The hill of the foreskins. This is Bible. If this is offensive, we need to be more biblical, less Victorian. But he says the hill of the foreskins. I have seen a lot of church names. I know a lot of church planters. I've never heard anybody name their church, the church at the hill of the foreskins. Right? But this is, this is where God was taking them. It was the place of sacrifice. It was the place of pain. How many of you know everybody wants to go into the promised land, but nobody wants to get over the hill of foreskins? Yeah. Right? 
Everybody wants the blessing, but nobody wants the sacrifice required. And here's the reality of our faith, that the founder of our faith climbed a hill. He died on a hill, a hill of sacrifice, a hill of suffering. And the core of our faith is, yes, God wants to bless us. Yes, God wants to multiply us. Yes, God wants to increase us. But it comes through sacrifice. That's why Jesus said this, that if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Again, I've seen a lot of messages out there, seven keys to a better this. I've never seen seven keys to denying yourself. But how many of you know the biggest problem in my life is myself? Who knows what I'm talking about? (laughs) And Jesus says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. We could say it this way without trying to stretch the analogy too much, that there there has to be some things cut off if we want to follow Jesus. There's going to be some things cut off. There's going to be some mindsets cut off. There's going to be some habits that have to go. There may be some some ways of living. And somebody may question it, and you feel like, who are you to question me? It's the core of our faith, that our faith is built not on comfort, but on sacrifice. Comfort is not a value in the kingdom of God. Sacrifice is. And we have built much of the church and even much of following Jesus on if it makes you comfortable. And I have to tell you, I have said it before. If you're comfortable, raise your hands. No. If you're comfortable raising your hands, it's probably not worship. (laughs) It's good vibes. And you could do that anywhere. I mean, you can do it at a concert. That doesn't make it worship. You're just feeling it. And, and Christianity is not about good feels. It's about sacrifice. It's about dying to ourselves because we believe that what happens through death is better than the life we have. Why do people sacrifice? Because what they get is better than what they had. The Bible says about Jesus that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't want to go to the cross. He said, Father, if there's any other way, Let this cup pass for me. It's the only thing in the Bible Jesus had to pray three times for. He didn't have to tell Lazarus, come out three times. He didn't have to tell the wind and waves, be still three times. The greatest challenge that Jesus had was dealing with his own flesh that didn't want to go to the cross. And his flesh is screaming. He's he's sweating blood because of the pain. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's our founder. That's our, our leader. That's our our pastor, our good shepherd, who sacrificed himself. You never read stories of comfortable Christians and get inspired. Have you ever read a biography of a Christian and you read it and it says, "They, they showed up to church occasionally, threw a 20 in the bucket, and kind of lived for themselves the rest of the time. Wow, that's inspiring. Wow, what a picture. Nobody's inspired by that. The next generation is not inspired by that. If we want the next generation to follow our faith, we've got to have a faith worth following. And faith worth following is not built on comfort, it's built on sacrifice. The biographies that we read that inspire us are the biographies of the the missionaries that, that 
sold everything, gave their lives, packed their belongings in their casket and shipped it across the world because what they were gaining was greater than what they're losing. If we want a faith that changes the world, it's not comfortable faith, it's sacrificial faith. Let's show our children what it looks like to have a faith worth sacrificing for. Let's show the next generation a picture of Jesus that is so beautiful that we're willing to go through suffering and pain and difficulty for the joy set before us. If we're not willing to sacrifice for our faith, if we're not willing to sacrifice our comfort, and I'm not talking about some legalistic, everybody's got to, you know, pack a casket and head out. I'm talking about the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We, the, the, the drift of our flesh is towards comfort. I love comfort. Anybody else love comfort? Yes. Let's all go to the coop after church today and just get comfort food. We'll feel real good over there. I love comfort. But the kingdom doesn't advance through comfort. The kingdom advances through sacrifice. Is there something in, our, in, in your life, in my life, in our church, that we have allowed to become a place of comfort that we're not willing to allow the, the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction? too, because it's so comfortable. God wants us to be people that live for sacrifice. I know I reference my dad already. Anytime he's here, I love to reference him because he's marked me. He's marked my life. And I've seen my dad preach before thousands of people, but you know what marked my life from my dad was not him preaching on a stage in front of thousands of people. What marked my life was seeing my mom and dad at 3 a.m. when people would show up at our house because they had a problem and my parents didn't pretend like they're asleep. They opened the door. They said, come on in. Let me help you. What do you need? What's the problem? What marked my life is the times that I would see my dad go to the church building, even when it was a, a big church building and he had a staff of people, but I would see him go there and I'd see him pray and I'd see him even cleaning up and making sure everything was in order. That's what marked my life. Crowds come and go, but, but that left an indelible imprint on my life that made me say, I want to live for something greater than myself. I want to live for the purposes of God. Sacrificial faith. If we want to mark future generations, our faith needs to be sacrificial. The third thing I want you to see here is that not only was it hidden and sacrificial, but their faith was also a communal faith. It was a communal faith. It says this in verse 2. God said to Joshua, circumcise the sons of Israel. It, it was not just individual. It was a communal experience. I don't know if you realize this, but, but psychologists tell you that going through a difficult situation with other people bonds you like nothing else. And God is, is forming this community of people that not only are they going to go into the promised land, but they're going to go in together. Because ultimately what God was after was not just a bunch of individuals. God was after a family. You see, faith and the grace of God in our lives will always produce an atmosphere of family. It will always bring us into the family of God. Is it personal? Yes. But it's also communal. And when we love God, we begin to love other people. We begin to 
be transformed into the likeness of our Father. We begin to even look alike, we could say. They, they were marked. They had, a, they had a, a shared mark that identified them that they are the people of God. They're the people of God. And when you come, into God, when you come to God, you come into God's family. I know as Americans, we love independence. And I think freedom is a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful value. God sets us free, but he also sets us free from sin and sets us into families. The Bible says that he sets the solitary in families. And so if we want to mark the next generation, we need to show them what community looks like, what family looks like, not just blood family, but family in the kingdom of God, that it's not just an individual faith, it's a communal faith, that we are we are saved together. You know, sometimes when I'm out and about around town, somebody will see me and they'll start talking to me about coffee as if I'm a coffee expert. And they, I, I go with it and it normally breaks down at some point. And then I have to admit that I'm lying. Uh, but they see me and they think I'm Jarrett. Normally I have a hat on and they look at me and they think, wow, you've let yourself go. But <laughs> there's something about us that's familiar. There's something about us that we kind of look alike. Sometimes we even finish each other's sandwiches. Yes. <laughs> Why? Because we're family. We're family. And, and that's what the people of God should be. We should be family. We should carry a mark, a family, that when people... When people are around us, they may not know exactly what it is, but there's something about you that reminds me of somebody else. What is it? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Have you ever met somebody and you think, I think he's, he's my brother. That's my sister. I don't know what it is about them. Uh, it may not be their vernacular, their religious lingo, but there's something about them. They just have a, a twinkle in their eye. There's something about them that's different. They've been marked. They've been marked. And God is calling us to be a people that, are, that, are, that bear the mark. What's the ultimate mark in the new covenant? It's the mark of love. The mark of love. We've been marked. How many of you are glad to be born in the new covenant? Oh, hallelujah. Yes. Glad to be in the new covenant. We've been marked by love. Our hearts have been transformed. Therefore, we live out of a, a transformed nature. That's why Jesus says this, I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If we've been marked by the Holy Spirit, it will manifest in love for other people. Here's, here's one of the first things that happens when somebody gets saved. They start wanting to get together with other people. They start feeling like, I, I want to just be around these people. These are my people. We may have nothing in common in the natural, but, but I've been marked, and they've got the same mark, and we've been marked by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I want to be with them. I have to tell you, I was so proud in a good way, if I could say that, of Christian up here emceeing. Christian over here. Christian, come here. Can we put our hands together for Christian? This is an awesome, awesome, awesome man. 
And I was, I was uh, standing over there. Yeah, Sierra, this is an awesome man. A little louder. They can hear it in the back. I was, I was watching him MC and lead, and I was remembering when Christian gave his life to the Lord in this place. And Christian's life has been transformed seven years ago. Is that right? Seven years ago. His life was transformed, and he just keep, I mean, for, for a long time, everything that, for, if we ever needed anything, if there was anything that needed to happen, Christian was the guy. Then he got married and had kids and had to take care of them as well, but what was the transformation? He was marked by love. He's marked by love. Thank you, Christian. I love you, man. More than anything... We as a church want to be a people that, that carry the mark of love. That God has transformed our heart. Uh, do we need the practical things? Do we want to have great aesthetics? Do we want to have, at worship team, you guys can come back up. Do we want to have, uh, you know, comfortable chairs in our new building? Yeah. Do we want to have a great sound system? Yes. But let me tell you, those things won't mark the next generation. Most people that I talk to that grew up in church, that love the Lord, normally the thing that they say stuck with them the most was, man, it was rough. Man, it was tough. When we grew up, we had to be there. I, I mean, I, was, I remember growing up, my parents were planting a church. My mom was the worship leader. My dad was the pastor. I think my brother Jordan was in charge of me. He was 16 months older than me, and I was like two. <laughs> and they would bring us, and we would sit on the front row, and my mom would lead worship, and my dad would preach, and they would get us breakfast from Burger King on the way. One Sunday, I threw up my breakfast on myself. My life was marked. But what marked my life? What was it that made me say, I love God's people? What was it that made me say, I want to give my life to the purposes of God, as so many of us have, regardless of the sphere of, of life and work and ministry that God has put us in. We've been marked by God. We've been marked by God, and we've seen something that's so beautiful. We can't look away. God has captured our heart. We love each other and we become a beautiful community. The church is not about a building. The church is not about an organization. The church is the spirit of Jesus manifest on a group of people. Having a better building won't change the world. What will? Our hearts, we've been marked. We've been marked by Jesus been cut to the heart. There's the old life, the old ways, the old attitudes. We're not finished yet. There's still some cutting and that's happening. But our hearts have been transformed. We begin to love one another. And the last thing about faith, if we want faith that will mark the next generation, is this, that faith that marks the next generation is visionary faith. You see, their mark was connected to their mission. The mark was connected to the mission. God said, I'm going to bring you into a land, Abraham. I'm going to make you a father. See the stars, Abraham? So shall your descendants be. 
I don't have any children. You will. You're having a Genesis moment right now, and there's going to be a generation and generation and generation that will come from you. So shall your descendants be. Abraham caught a vision. God was going to bring them into a place. And God was going to make a people that through that people, the world would be transformed. That's what God's called us to be. God's called us to be a people that have been marked by God. That begin to reproduce generations to come and people and families and new believers and new children. And we've been marked. And through us, God will change the world. Through a community of people that have been marked by God, God will change the world. Listen to what God said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49, 6. I have given you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God was saying, I've saved you and I've called you and I've given you a mission that through you, the world will be transformed. Today around the world, there's generation after generation of people that have been marked by the faith of Abraham, not faith in the law, not the the Mosaic law, but the faith of Abraham. God's called us to change the world. You may think, wow, Justin, that sounds like an exaggeration. What do we have? About 100 people here. I think there was a room one time with about 100 and 120 people. I think, anybody remember anything like that? I think there was a room about that, about that size and something happened in that room. A people were marked by God and changed the world. What would it look like for us to live, not just as Sunday Christians, to have a nice service, to get through the week, but what would it look like for us to live a faith that changes the world? Would you stand to your feet today?